Turn to Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 48, Old Testament book, Ezekiel chapter 48, which by the way is the last chapter of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 48, last chapter, last verse, that's right, last chapter, last verse. Before we read this verse, let me just give you just a little bit of context to the book of Ezekiel. The book of Ezekiel basically deals with God's dealings with the nation of Israel because they rebelled against him. God punished them. God delivered them into the hands of some enemies. Uh, but God was not through with Israel yet. He was going to maintain a remnant of the Israelites so that he could one day send a Messiah through the Jews whose name is Jesus, right? And so he's graciously, in the midst of his judgment, graciously saying to them, I'm not through with you yet. One day, you'll be able to return to Jerusalem, return to your homeland, rebuild the temple. Uh, I'll, I'll make you my people. I'll give you a heart for my commandments. I'm going to restore you as a nation. And there are some uh, historical fulfillments of that in uh, Ezra and Nehemiah when they begin to return from captivity and rebuild the temple and rebuild the walls. But... Uh, the book of Ezekiel looks beyond the, the near historical fulfillment to final fulfillment. And so when you're reading Ezekiel, sometimes it's hard to tell if God's talking about the near future for Israel or if he's talking about end times, how everything's going to turn out at the end. But here in chapter 48, he's talking about rebuilding a temple. And look what he says in verse 35. The city, this, this city where the temple will be, we would call it Jerusalem or the New Jerusalem, the city shall be 18,000 cubits around about, and the name of the city from that day shall be the Lord is there, which is Jehovah Shammah. The Lord is there. That's a name of God revolving around this, this city where the temple would be, where his presence would be. Now, I believe this is, this, this is a passage that points to final fulfillment in the New Jerusalem. All right? So I'm just going to uh, lay my cards on the table at the very beginning, and we'll, I'll show you how that all plays out as we work our way through some passages tonight. So the name is, the Lord is there. The Lord is there. This name speaks of the presence of God in his people's lives. So one of the exciting truths of scripture is, when you are one of God's people, and you're his son or his daughter, his child, and you're one of his people, he is present in your life. We're going to kind of unpack that. But that's the major truth behind the name Jehovah Shammah. Now what I want to do is I want to talk about the presence of God and how we see the, the presence of God wax and wane throughout the entire Bible. And I'm going to give you really a, we're going to go through the entire Bible tonight quickly, okay? So I'm going to give you just kind of a big picture overview starting in Genesis and ending in Revelation. All right? So you ready for that? Think I can do that quickly? You don't look optimistic. All right, we're going to go fast, though, and I've broken it down into, I don't know how many statements, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine statements, something like that. So, nine statements that will give us a biblical overview of the presence of God in people's lives. Here's number one, God with man. How does the Bible begin? The Bible begins by saying, God created the heavens and the earth, and then God creates uh, the planets, he creates the, the, the earth, he creates the things on the earth, he creates the vegetation, he creates the animals, the birds of the air, the fish in the sea. He creates everything. Then he decides to create humanity in his image. He creates Adam, 
And then from the rib of Adam, he creates Eve to give Adam a helpmate in the Garden of Eden. And we know by reading the account of Eden that they had unfettered access to, to God. God walked with them and talked with them in the garden. They enjoyed paradise and enjoyed their relationship with one another and enjoyed their relationship with God. So it was perfect. I mean, God created them for fellowship with one another, created them for fellowship with him, and everything was perfect. That's Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. God with man. That's how it all started out. That's God's ideal. That, that, that's what God desired was, was intimacy with humanity. That he would be present with them. That they would experience his presence. They would experience a relationship with him. So the Bible starts by telling us that we see God with man. Everybody got that? Now what happens next? Separation from God. Genesis 3, the serpent comes into the Garden of Eden and he deceives Eve and Adam and they eat from the one tree that God told them not to eat from. Which, by the way, some people say, well, why did God even put that tree there? Right? I mean, why did God even give them the potential to sin? I mean, the tree wasn't there, they never would have sinned, everything would be good right now. So, I mean, why did God even put a tree there and say, don't eat from it? I mean, why even tempt them with that tree? Well, I believe the tree was there in the Garden of Eden as a way for Adam and Eve to prove their love for God. You remember what Jesus said? He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Remember that? That's what Jesus said. So every time they walked by that tree, they could express their love for God by saying, I'm going to obey. I'm not going to eat it. I know God knows what's best. I know he has my best interest at heart. I'm going to obey his commands. I'm not going to eat from that tree. So it was an opportunity for them to, to show their love for God by or through obedience. Well, they blew it. They were tempted by Adam, tempted to eat, and they ate the uh, fruit. And then what happens? They're hiding from God, right? They, they understand something that something's not right between them and God. They, 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 they feel the weight of their rebellion against God, and God has to find them uh, and ask them what happened. And remember what happens next when they, uh, when they confess they have eaten the, the fruit. They are kicked out of the Garden of Eden. They are separated from that relationship with God that they had, walking with God and talking with God in the Garden. They are kicked out of the Garden, and God puts an angel there with a sword to make sure no one else gets in that Garden. By the way, you say, well, where's the Garden now? If there's this beautiful paradise named Eden, why isn't it there anymore? Remember what happened uh, in the days of Noah? There was a great flood. Right? So that's why we would not be able to find the Garden of Eden. It was literally washed away by the flood. So we see God with man. Then we see separation from God because of man's sin. Isaiah 59, 2 says that our sins separate us from God. He's holy. He's perfect. And when we sin against a holy God, our sin separates us from him. It puts up a wall between us and God to where we are not in relationship with him. We are separated from him. We are under his condemnation, under his judgment, because we have rebelled against his holy, perfect commands. And so sin separates from God. And here's the deal. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So all of us have experienced this in our lives. We've all experienced separation from God. God's perfect. We have, just like Adam and Eve, disobeyed. We've not done what God's told us to do, or we've done what God's told us not to do. Sins of omission, sins of commission, but we've all sinned, just like Adam and Eve. So when Adam and Eve sinned, that's the first time in human history we see separation from God 
And the devastating effects of that are still playing out today. Right? Everywhere we look, we see the, the devastating effects of sin in our own lives, in the lives of our loved ones, in the, the evil in our world. The effects of a sin-cursed world are ubiquitous. They are everywhere. And so we see, in the Bible, separation from God. So you see, man enjoyed the presence of God, but after sinning, they were separated from the presence of God. So what comes next? Well, Genesis 3 tells us there was redemption promised. Redemption promised. There's a very interesting verse in chapter 3 of Genesis, verse 15. It's the first it's the first prophecy of the Messiah. And in Genesis 3.15, the Lord addresses Satan himself. And he says, Satan, one day, through the seed of a woman, your head is going to be crushed. Now this one who will be the seed of the woman, you'll bruise his heel, which I believe speaks of the cross. It's going to be a painful, uh, a, a painful way for the Messiah to come and rescue us. You'll bruise his heel, but ultimately, by his death on the cross, he will crush your head. Now, now, if you were going to get injured, would you rather be injured on your heel or on your head? Not, it's, not a, it's not rhetorical. You know. <laughs> heel, right? I mean, because head injuries can be, can be mortal. I mean, they, they can kill you. And so, he says, you're going to bruise his heel, the seed of the woman, but he's going to crush your head. That is a prophecy of the coming of the Messiah way back in the book of Genesis. So here's what's cool about that. God already had a plan in place to save humanity before Adam and Eve ever sinned. When they sinned, God said, you know what? I've got a plan. I've got a plan to pay the penalty for sin so that sinners can be forgiven. And he told Adam and Eve that in the Garden of Eden. That's why the Bible says that the Lamb of God, Jesus, was slain before the foundations of the world. I mean, before anything was ever created, before Adam and Eve ever ate that fruit, God already knew what was going to happen. God had a plan in place that culminated at the cross. Isn't that cool? I mean, God had humanity covered because of his love and mercy and grace. And so, we see that redemption is promised. And, and the wheels of redemption begin to turn in Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 12, God appears to Abraham. Abraham, go where I tell you to go. And, and Abraham, I'm going to give you a land, and I'm going to, through your descendants, make you a great nation. And he says to Abraham, through your descendants, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. Now, how did that happen? How did the descendants of Abraham, the Jews, how could they bless all the other ethnicities on the earth? The answer is, one day, through the Jews, God sent a Messiah, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died on the cross. Who did Jesus die on the cross for? Did he die for Jews? Okay, who else did he die for? Did he die for people that aren't Jews? Gentiles? How many here are Gentiles? You're not a Jew. Aren't you glad he died for Gentiles? He died for everybody. Every ethnicity, every tribe, every tongue, so that now salvation is available to everybody. So if anyone embraces Christ as their Lord and Savior, guess what? They are forgiven. They're blessed with salvation. So through Abraham's descendants, all the peoples of the earth can be blessed. So God began this 
process of sending a Savior by initiating a relationship with Abraham and giving him a promised son named Isaac and building his family through that son named Isaac and, get, and growing them into a great nation called Israel and one day sending the Messiah through that nation. So we see God with man, then we see separation from God, but redemption is promised. Man has been separated from God because of their sin, but God's going to make a way for, 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 for man to come back in relationship with him, for man to once again enjoy his presence. That's what's going on here. Now what happens next? Look there on your notes. God dwells among his people. God dwells among his people. And notice the verse range I had there, Genesis 12 through 2 Chronicles. That's basically the entire history of, of Israel before the exile. What we see is starting in Genesis 12, God begins to uh, give Abraham descendants. Uh, promises Isaac, and then later on in Genesis, he gives him Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has Joseph. Through the whole series of circumstances, uh, Joseph's family comes to Egypt. They're preserved through a great famine. And then uh, God leads him out of Egypt, leads him into the promised land. Uh, uh, through Moses, Joshua's the one that leads him across the river into the promised land. They drive many nations out of the promised land, the land God had given them. They take up residence in the promised land. And all through that, even though they were wicked, even though they were rebellious, God is gracious to his people, Israel. God preserves them. God protects them. God always keeps a faithful remnant so he could keep that nation together so that one day he could send his son. And so we see God graciously dwelling among his people. God giving Israel his presence. As a matter of fact, he set up this elaborate sacrificial system with uh, animal sacrifice and a tabernacle and a holy place and a lampstand and table of showbread and altar of incense and ark of the covenant and mercy seat and cherubim and all this stuff's going on all so that he could show them he would dwell among his people. And when they did everything right, by faith, they, they put into practice the sacrificial system in, in, in anticipation of what God was going to do by sending a Messiah. God would make his presence dwell among his people. He would manifest his presence, the Shekinah glory cloud. And we see that uh, through uh, the history of Israel. So God is dwelling among his people as he builds and preserves and protects this nation. But Israel crossed the line. They... They rebelled against God, worshipped idols, rejected the Lord, and because of that, they crossed the line of the heart of God. So God caused His glory to leave His people. In Second Chronicles and Second Kings, we see the story of God giving the northern kingdom uh, to, uh, into the hands of the Assyrians. He lets the Assyrians come in and conquer the, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, uh, Judah. He lets the Babylonians conquer them, take them into exile. And so God delivers them over to the hands of enemies. And they are decimated and dragged from their homeland. And it's just a terrible, dark time in Jewish history. And in Ezekiel chapter 10, this is all pictured uh, by showing Ezekiel this vision of the glory leaving the temple. As if to say, this is what I've done. You rebelled against me. I took my presence away from you. I left you as a nation. You no longer enjoy my manifest presence in your midst. And so God's glory leaves his people. And the nation of Israel, the Jews, encounter great destruction and great consequences for their sin and rebellion. But God's still gracious. And in the midst of all that, God promises restoration. That's what Ezekiel 48, 35 is about. He says, there's coming a day 
where you will say, the Lord is near. As a matter of fact, the name of the city will be Jehovah Shammah. The Lord is near. He has made his presence available to us once again. He, he causes glory to leave us, but now he's come back to us. He's made a way for us to enjoy him, to know him in a personal way. Speaks here, I believe, of the new covenant. And God promised restoration, which leads to this. How's God going to make this restoration available? He put into place an old covenant with Israel, but they, they blew it. So he needed a new covenant. And for the new covenant to take effect, someone had to come and make it available. So that's what happens next. God comes to earth. John chapter 1. Turn to John 1 with me. John chapter 1. Now see, that wasn't so bad. It's just the entire Old Testament. John chapter 1 verse 1. If you have questions now, jot them down. We'll take questions at the end of our time. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So wait, who's the Word? This one that was with God and was God himself. Look in verse 14. It says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Who's that, who's that talking about? Jesus. And so, Jesus, God himself, came and tabernacled, literally pitched his tent among us. He took on human flesh and came to earth and lived among us. He came, God came to earth. That's what the incarnation is all about. The Christmas story we celebrate every year is about Jesus, God himself, coming to earth to accomplish the work of redemption, to, to complete the work of redemption. And so Jesus came to earth, he lived a perfect life. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. After he died on the cross, he was buried. On the third day, what happened? He rose from the grave. So now, because he died, because he was buried, because he rose from the dead, now, because the work of redemption has been accomplished, if anyone embraces Christ as their Savior, he washes their sins away. He forgives them of all of their sins. And guess what happens next? He comes to live on the inside of them. That's what's next. Look on your notes. God in his people. God in his people. Turn to 1 Corinthians 3. I want to show you one of the implications of being a, a child of God. 16. Chapter 3, verse 16. By the way, have I ever told you this, that you ever want an interesting study one day? Uh, just go through the New Testament and read the different chapter 3, verse 16s in the Bible. You just go, look, there's some very, you know, we know John three sixteen, right? It's the one they used to hold up at football games. I haven't seen that in a long time. I haven't seen somebody, anyone hold up that sign in a long time, which might say something about our culture. But anyway, uh, if you go through the New Testament and you look at the different three sixteens throughout the New Testament, it's pretty fascinating to see some of the, the, the key verses that are there. Now, the number, the verse references aren't inspired by God, okay? Those were added later by, by people to help organize them, so there's nothing magical about it. But it's just interesting to note that a, that a lot of important key verses fall in chapter 3, verse 16 of different New Testament books. So you study that and get back to me. Tell me how it goes, okay? All right. Do you not know that you, the you there is a plural speaking up to the church. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God... 
God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. So saying, if you're a part of the church, if you're a, if you're a child of God, the, the Spirit of God dwells in you. The, the Spirit of God dwells among his people. The Spirit of God dwells in his church. Romans 8 says that the Spirit of God dwells in those who know Christ. So, when I was nine years old, I met Christ. My pastor came and sat down with me at my dining room table. He walked me down the Romans road. I, I knew from reading the scriptures that I was a sinner in need of a Savior. The wages of sin was death. I deserved God's punishment. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He showed me that if I believe in my heart that God has raised Christ from the dead and confessed with my mouth that Jesus is Lord, I shall be saved. And so at my dining room table, I called on the name of the Lord. And at that moment, I was converted. I was forgiven of all my sins. Sins I'd committed to that point and sins I will commit until my dying day. They were all forgiven by Christ. That's pretty cool, right? I'm just really grateful for God's forgiveness. I need it. How about you? Am I the only sinner in here? Am I? Okay. But you know what else happened when I was nine years old at that dining room table? is imperceptible. I didn't feel anything. But at that moment, the Bible says the Spirit of God, the third person of the Godhead, came to live on the inside of me. That's pretty incredible, isn't it? The Holy Spirit of God came to take up residence in my life. Which, by the way, you know one of the ways I know the Spirit lives in me? I can't get away with anything. When I, when I sin, I mean the Spirit instantly grips my heart. Wait, you shouldn't have done that. And it's just so real to me that the Spirit points out my shortcomings and my failures immediately. And I know He's living in me because He's so quick to show me when I fall short and I need to get right with Him. That's the, the power of the Spirit dwelling in my life. If you're living a life of rebellion against God and you don't feel any conviction over that, you need to be very, very concerned about your relationship with God or lack thereof. Because if you're a child of God and you're running from Him, there will be deep, powerful conviction in your life. And if you have a hardened conscience, a hardened heart, there's no conviction there, you're just doing your own thing, it's probably because the Spirit of God does not dwell in you. You're not His. Because if you're His, you can't get away with anything without being miserable. As a matter of fact, I think the most miserable people in the world are Christ followers in rebellion. I think they're miserable because they know better. And the Spirit of God is, is gripping their heart, convicting them of their sin, uh, calling them to get right. And so when I was nine years old, the Spirit of God came to live on the inside of me. And if you're a Christ follower, the moment you met Christ, the Spirit of God, the third person of the Godhead, the one who 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 spoke the universe into existence, he lives inside of you. Isn't that amazing? He lives inside of you right now. He is living in you. God in his people. So through Christ, because Christ forgave us of our sins, because Christ defeated death, when we embrace Christ, we're no longer separated from God. Now we enjoy his perfect presence in our lives. I mean, literally in our lives. So what do we see happening here? God with man. Separation from God. Redemption promised. God dwells among his people. God's glory leaves his people. God promises restoration. God comes to earth. God in his people. And then last, God's people eternally in his presence. God's people eternally in his presence. Because of our propensity to forget spiritual realities like God living in us, because of the demands of living in a sin-cursed world, because we're surrounded by evil, because we still struggle with sins ourselves, Sometimes we don't experience the fullness of the presence of God, right? 
I mean, I dare say that some of you lived today the entire day and didn't think once about the presence of God in your life. Not, just, not one time. It didn't cross your mind at all. And, and I'm guilty of the same thing. I'll go throughout an entire day and not think about the unfailing presence of God in my life. So let's just do, let's, let's do a survey. Let's be honest today. How many say, Wade, I did not have one conscious thought today of the presence of God in my life? Raise your hand. Okay. How many say, I did? I thought a lot about the presence of God today. Wow, okay, goodness. Y'all studying ahead in the book? Good. So that's what we want. So, but, but, but because we're so prone to forget, because we don't feel the presence of God often, that's what makes heaven, the promise of heaven, so wonderful. Because one day, God is going to do away with all sin and rebellion, all evil, and one day we will be free from the very presence of sin, and we'll be in heaven with the Lord, with the Lord Jesus Christ in his presence, and we'll know it. I mean, we'll be there with him, singing around his throne, worshiping him, serving him. We'll eternally be in his presence. That's what the book of Revelation talks about. Let's turn to Revelation, the last book in the Bible. If you get to the maps, you've gone too far. Sorry, I like that joke. I won't use it again for a while. Look in Revelation chapter 21. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. There's no longer any sea, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle, the dwelling of God, is among men, and he will dwell among them. Jehovah Shammah, he is there. He will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Now, skip Ahead to verse 22. He says, John, seeing this revelation, says, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. The city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed, and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, and nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Whose names are in the Lamb's book of life? Those who know Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. So we're all evil, we're all sinners, we all deserve hell, but if we embrace Christ, He washes away our sins, gives us His perfect righteousness as a gift, and writes our name in the Lamb's book of life. And if our name is in the Lamb's book of life, when we die we will begin an eternity in that wonderful place called heaven in the presence of God. That's good news, right? It's good news. Eternal presence. And so notice, Genesis starts with the presence of God with his people, Adam and Eve. But things went haywire, and we're living in the middle of the haywire right now, right? But because of Jesus, one day, we're going to experience, again, the unbroken, unfettered, perfect presence of God for all of eternity. And that will be joy at its fullest. You can't imagine the joy and the rapture and the delight and the fulfillment and the satisfaction of your faith becoming sight. Of seeing Jesus and talking to him and, and hearing him say, hopefully, well done, good and faithful servant. I mean, what a day that will be. God's people eternally in his presence. So look, 20, about 25 minutes, we went from Genesis to Revelation. Pretty cool, right? 
We went fast. Uh, that's a biblical overview of the presence of God. So you see kind of what the Bible's about, right? It's about knowing God. Because of sin, we separ- we're separated from God, but because of Jesus, we can know God and enjoy His presence in this life and in in, in, in fully in eternity. Now, well, let's take questions. Any questions on that before I get application? Any questions on this quick overview of the presence of God in the Bible? Any questions tonight? Clarification. Oh, thank you. All right. Let's look at application. All right, wait. If this is true, if, if, I, if I'm a Christ follower and Jesus is present in my life, the Holy Spirit lives in me, if I can enjoy a relationship with God, what does that mean for my day-to-day living? How should the presence of God affect my life? I'll give you four little application points here. We'll look at these and we'll be through. Number one, recognize the presence of God. Turn to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. This is a passage commonly referred to as the Great Commission. You've heard this. If you've been around Longview Point very much at all, you've heard this verse. These verses drive everything we do as a church. This is what we want to be about as a church. We're not where we need to be, but this is where we're headed. We want to be a Great Commission church. It says there in verse 18, Jesus is giving this, this commission to his disciples, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples. That's the driving command of Jesus for the disciples to to make disciples, to to introduce people who are lost and far from God to Christ so they could become followers of Christ. They could be saved. So preach the gospel. They can follow Christ. Then once they follow Christ, you, you help them to grow and mature so they can reach out to others as well. So go, therefore, and make disciples of, of who? All the nations. That's... that's uh, the boundaries of this commission. We're to go to all the nations to make disciples. Baptizing them when they become a disciple, you mark them by baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. You help them to grow in their faith. And look what Jesus says. As you fulfill this life purpose, as you go to make disciples on the earth, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I have a pastor friend back in Florida, and he is terrified to fly. I mean, just he will not get on a plane. He's, he, he's, just, he's, he's terrified. And uh, he told me one day, he said, listen, the Bible says, lo, I will be with you always. <laughs> That's twisting scripture, okay? It's not L-O-W, it's lo, it's behold. I will be with you always. Here's what Jesus is saying. You can trust my unfailing presence in your life. As you live out a life of meaning and purpose, making disciples for the glory of God. And so, Jesus has promised his presence. And guess what? Jesus does not lie. Right? And so, as you live on mission with God, as you live a life of purpose and meaning, you can trust that Jesus is with you. You need to recognize his presence. Recognize that he is with you. Even if you don't feel it, know by faith that he is with you and that Uh, makes a difference in our day-to-day living. So recognize the presence of God. Secondly, rest in the presence of God. Rest in the presence of God. Turn to Hebrews chapter 13. The verse I'm about to read in verse 5 is a verse you've heard before, but you may have never 
thought about the context. Look in Hebrews 13. Verse 5, he writes, the writer of Hebrews writes, make sure that your character is free from the love of money. That's a tough one, isn't it? How do you do that? Look at the next part of that phrase. Being content with what you have. Contentment is the antidote to materialism. You hear what I just said? Write that down. That's good. That's good. Contentment is the antidote to materialism. Then look what he says. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So notice here, the presence of Jesus is in the context of contentment. Does everybody see that? In other words, don't love money, be content because you have Jesus. And Jesus is enough. You may have heard me share the story before, but if you, if you haven't heard it, I'm going to share it again. If you have heard it, I'm sorry. But when I was a youth minister, I'll never forget this moment. Uh, a gentleman had visited our church, and he lived in a, a very low-income area in some uh, subsidized apartment housing in the city. And, and, and I went with my pastor to go and visit this gentleman who had visited our church. And, and it was just, the, the living conditions were just squalid. It was awful. It smelled bad. It looked bad. It was just, it was just a depressing place uh, where this guy was living. And so we went, and, 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 and we talked to him and ministered to him. And, and we were leaving, and literally, I was holding my breath through some of this because it was just, it was just such deplorable conditions. And, and we're walking out to the car. I was riding with my pastor, and my pastor said, he said, you know, wait, I wonder if that was me living there. If I was living in that apartment, he said, I wonder if Jesus would be enough. I mean, that gripped my heart. And I thought, I wonder if it would be enough for me. I wonder if I lived in... Those kind of conditions, less than ideal, deplorable, smelly conditions. I wonder if I was in that situation, if I could be content because I had Jesus. It's a good question to ask, isn't it? Is Jesus really enough? I mean, we say Jesus is enough, but I mean, is he really enough? Can we really be content in this life because we have Jesus? And listen, if you can find your contentment in Jesus, the materialism will have no grip on your life at all. No grip. And so... Rest in the presence of God. You have Jesus, the unfailing presence of Jesus. You have him. Rest in that. You don't need anything else, right? Stop clamoring and, 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 and manipulating and trying to just get more stuff. If you've got Jesus, you've got enough. Turn to Psalm 46. Another psalm about resting in the presence of Jesus presence of the Lord. Psalm 46, one of my favorite psalms. Psalm 46, 1. God is our refuge and strength. I love this. A very present help. When? In trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Over Down in verse 10 it says, Be still and know that I am God. So here's what this chapter is saying. When you are in the throes of pain and heartache and your world has been turned upside down, 
you can rest in the reality that God is a present help. He's there. He's, he's in the midst of that. And you can rest in that reality that, that when you're going through valleys, you're not, you're not going through valleys alone. Isn't that what the psalmist says in Psalm 23? Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why? You are with me. I can go through the valley with the knowledge that you're with me. The valley's dark, the valley's difficult, the valley's hard, but I know God's with me, and that matters. If you find yourself in difficult situations, then you will. Learn to rest in the presence of God. By faith, know that God is with you, that he will give you what you need, that he's there with you. You're never alone if you have Jesus. So recognize the presence of God. Secondly, Rest in the presence of God. Third, rejoice in the presence of God. Rejoice in the presence of God. Uh, Turn with me to Psalm 16. Psalm 16, verse 11. Psalm 16, verse 11. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is what? Fullness. Not just joy. Fullness of joy. So if you want to know what true, unfettered joy is, then rejoice in the presence of God. That's where true joy is found. Listen, when you've got the presence of God, circumstances can't change that. Right? No matter what happens with your circumstances, it does not change the reality that you have God. Right? And so you can rejoice in the fullness of joy that comes from knowing God is with you. Turn to Psalm 73 with me. Psalm 73, verse 28. Psalm 73, verse 28, the last verse in that psalm. The psalmist writes, But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. The psalmist says, God's nearness, God's presence, the fact that Jehovah Shammah, God is there, is my good. That's what I find good in this life. That's what I find my consolation in, my comfort in, my, my joy in, the rejoice in the presence of God. So recognize the presence of God, rest in the presence of God, rejoice in the presence of God, and then fourth, practice the presence of God. Practice the presence of God. Now that phrase comes from a monk that lived in the 17th century named Brother Lawrence. And his writings have become very well known because of his way of reflecting on the presence of God in the midst of the most menial of tasks. For example, some of his writings talk about reflecting on God's presence when washing the dishes or preparing a meal. And, and what Brother Lawrence is saying is, if you know the Lord, that no matter what you're doing in life, 
exciting things, hard things, mundane things, no matter what's happening in life, you can uh, practice the presence of God. You can live uh, with a conscious awareness that God is there with you. And that can change the way you do things. It can change the mundane tasks. Uh, if, you're, if you're mowing the grass or washing the dishes or putting up tables in a few moments, moments help, help, uh, hopefully. Uh, it, whatever, whatever you're doing, if you realize God is with you, it can change the way you approach life. It's called practicing the presence of God. Turn to Psalm 140. Psalm 140. In verse 13, last verse. The Bible says, Surely the righteous will give thanks to your name. The upright will dwell, live in your presence. And so, if you're righteous, if you're walking with God, then you can expect His his, uh, the reality, the manifestation of His presence in your day-to-day life. So live like it. Practice the presence of, of God. Which, by the way, is what I believe is in view in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse, I think it's verse 16, where the Bible says, pray without ceasing. Everybody familiar with that verse? Pray continually. I mean, what does that mean? Right? We have responsibilities. I, mean, I, I can't literally, you know, be on my knees praying all day long. Right? I mean... You just can't functionally do that. You've got to drive to work, right? You don't want to have your eyes closed when you're doing that, right? You might be able to pray, but, but you see what I'm saying? We've, we've got to do life. And so how do you pray without ceasing? How do you pray continually? Well, I believe it's practicing the presence of God. That there's an attitude of the nearness of God. That you realize God is there, God is with you, and even when you have a few moments, you, you whisper a prayer to God, you ask Him for help and wisdom in the next meeting, or comfort with the bad news you've gotten, or you get away for lunch and spend time on your knees. But throughout the day, you're aware that God is present. You're aware that God is with you. You practice the presence of God. You talk to Him often. And even when you're not talking to Him, you're aware He's there. That, that's, the, that's an attitude of prayer, right? That's a, an awareness of the presence of God. That's practicing the presence of God. Uh, I've even heard some people saying, I've tried this before, and, it, and it, it's quite effective, that they, uh, when they're driving down the road and they're by themselves, they, they um, uh, envision in their mind, Jesus is sitting in the pasture seat beside them. And, you know, Jesus is with them. He may not be sitting in the pasture seat, but he's there in the car. And so, but you, if, you, if you have that conscious awareness, Jesus is here, it'll, it'll make you more prone to turn off Rush Limbaugh and talk to him a little bit. Amen? Or whatever you listen to, sports talk radio. Okay, ESPN Radio, which I listen a lot uh, to a lot. So uh, we need to practice the presence of God. And Psalm one forty thirteen says, "The upright will dwell in His presence." I love this quote from Ken Hemphill. He writes, "The distinctive characteristic of the people of God is that He is personally present with them." If you are a Christian, then I must ask you. Does your lifestyle demonstrate that God is present in you? Is his presence reflected in the way you do business? Do your language and lifestyle demonstrate the presence of God in your life? Do your personal relationships speak of his presence? If you answer no to any of these questions, it is time for you to turn from activities that do not speak of his presence and turn to him. You are his temple. He desires, listen, to reveal himself through you. So, God is present in your life. Can people tell by looking at your life? Can they tell that God lives in you? Can they tell 
that God's hand is on you? Can they tell the power of Jesus is, is flowing through you? Can they, can they see the manifest presence of God in your life? Or are you just going through the motions like everybody else, just running the rat race, trying to make it to the weekend? Or are you living with the power of the presence of God in your life? So it's just a tremendous privilege to know God is Jehovah Shammah, to know that God is there. If you're his, he's there. You're in the valley, he's there. You're in the mundane, he's there. You're on the mountaintop, he's there. Whatever you do, God is there. He's promised to be there. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. He's there. His presence in our lives is a great gift. Because, listen, it's the gift of himself. <laughs> what more could he give us than himself, right? Jehovah Shema. 